names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 65, The House That Peter Built. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And we are here with our van down by the river in uh, the mountains of North Carolina, enjoying a place that normally rains, but for some reason, I guess Gumby asked, he pleaded with uh, the higher authorities to have a few days without rain, and we got it. Mm-hmm. I promised my firstborn child that ah. I'm never going to have one. Ooh, that's bad form. Ooh, it's going to pour rain on us yeah, in the middle of this I podcast, think, and, I think the, and we're going to deserve it. The clouds are starting to form again. But yeah, we've been here all week, and this is like the place that uh, nothing ever dries. But like Teresa said, we've had a couple of days of sun, so that's been unusual. The place of eternal rain, Curtis Creek. But yeah, so we've been enjoying the past couple of days without rain, even though I, I kind of do miss our constant water supply um, from the clouds. And uh, this topic that we're going to talk about today... Um, mutual aid and Catholic worker houses started to get my interest when I saw signs in yards um, around Durham, North Carolina, where we are at in the wintertime, um, for mutual aid. And it, they mostly started cropping up uh, with the, the COVID-19 pandemic stuff. So all these signs were directing you to go to some sort of website for mutual aid information. Um, and I was curious as to what that exactly entailed and if it would be helpful to people like us and other people that are trying to escape society. And we also had an experience, um, a personal experience at a Catholic worker house, um, as well as, uh, a few other Christian anarchists in our lives. So I wanted to talk about that. And then, um, I'll just kind of get into a little bit about what a Catholic worker house is, but here's our experience. Um, a couple Thanksgivings ago, I got a request for a pet sitting gig and it was also kind of like a house sitting slash people sitting gig, which I, I really didn't know how to take that, but, um, the woman was paying me $50 a night and it was going to add up to be like, I don't know, $500 while they were away. So I was like, okay, what do I need to do? Um, they had opened up their house as a Catholic worker house, her and her partner. And there were indeed people staying there. In fact, there was a family with five kids. Um, and I was just instructed to kind of keep an eye on the kids, make sure they're not doing anything crazy. Um, when their produce box was delivered to the house to, to give some fruit to the kids and, and just in general to make sure that the house wasn't getting just torn apart with like dishes stacked everywhere that were dirty and garbage overflowing and everything. But this was a, this was a Catholic worker house and it's where you basically, um, open your home to people in need. Um, and this particular Catholic worker house, uh, mentions in their description on their website, like they'll help you with getting a job, writing a resume, um, tutoring with homework, help for kids, as well as sharing food. And they did have chickens, 
Um, they didn't really have a garden so much. Like I said, they had a produce box delivered. And um, the woman had told me that they were often on dumpster divers, but I didn't really see that reflected in their food in the house. It was kind of just something that they did on a whim every so often, just for shits and giggles. Um, it didn't seem like this particular Catholic worker house was following any sort of um, set of rules, and we'll get into that a little bit later, uh, one of which is kind of like taking a voluntary vow of poverty, and I didn't really get that um, from this particular place because uh, I think at that point they were going on a cruise, <laughs> and like I said, they were paying me like $50 a night to uh, to watch some of their animals and, and watch their people. Well, Teresa, it was probably a poverty cruise. I bet they probably like tied, tied bamboo together and they were out there floating <laughs> on the ocean. Or maybe it was like uh, an eco, no, what would they say? A poverty tourism cruise where you could like <laughs> see all the refugees floating in the ocean. I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. But it intrigued me that people were actually doing this thing called Catholic Worker House. And I'm Catholic kind of by birth. I don't really practice um, a religion. Yeah, what does that mean? You keep saying you're Catholic by birth. I always think of Catholicism sort of like like Buddhism. Like if it's a philosophy, either I embrace or I'm not. But you say it almost as if it's a race you're born into. It's kind of like Hinduism. Well, they get you when they're young. So if your parents are Catholic and they baptize you, then you're Catholic. But are you saying that according to what you perceive other people's values are? Or do you really feel like you're Catholic? I feel like I, if you asked me, like if you, if I had to name a religion that I am, I would say that I'm Catholic, but I'm not a practicing Catholic. Yeah, man, that seems so weird to me. I have nothing that's uh, equivalent to that. Yeah. Yes, it is strange. But um, I had never heard of Catholic Worker Houses or the Catholic Worker Movement, which, by the way, was founded in 1933 by Peter Marin and Dorothy Day. And it isn't exactly uh, part of the Catholic Church, but it has more or less religious overtones. So, um, like in this Catholic worker house I was describing, the woman, she had some sort of kind of side business where she was trying to get spiritual retreats together and make her money that way. Um, but I didn't really get a, a sense of any, any sort of um, pressure, like any sort of religious uh, overtones in their house. I mean, I don't think I even saw, like, a cross or anything. Um, Gumby, also, you you pet sat for them over Christmas that same year. Did you have anything else to add? I've personally known of two Catholic worker houses. One was in uh, Pittsburgh, and uh, I knew both the, the people that ran that, um, really nice people, and they'd send their kid to a program that I was teaching. Usually he was in the group, the younger group, with the uh, other folks. Um, I had their kid in my program a few times, um, but I was just vaguely aware that they were part of something called a Catholic worker house. And at the time, anything that, that had any whiff of Christianity to, Christianity to me, I was just like, eh, I've heard enough. <laughs> so I didn't ask questions. I didn't pay much attention. And then Teresa getting this pet sitting gig, um, you know, that was my second introduction to Catholic worker houses. And at one point, you had agreed to pet sit for 
I don't know, maybe like two weeks or something while these people were away, and then you wanted to go to a family event. It was over a holiday, so I agreed to take over the duties for you. So, uh, yeah, I was the, the pet sitter um, slash house sitter slash whatever the else this job entailed. Social worker. Social worker <laughs> at this Catholic worker house, and it was uh, I slept in my van outside. But uh, I guess you're going to get more into the details of how this runs and how it runs, like how it's supposed to run maybe and how this did run or do you want me to talk about my impressions right now well well let me just say this like the aim of the catholic worker movement is to live in accordance with the justice and charity of jesus christ and that sounds super religious but when you start to think about jesus like jesus the man jesus the message that he brought that is kind of cool um it just sounds really religious-y at first when you hear that. But the thing about these Catholic worker houses, like I said, they're really autonomous. They really don't have a whole lot of um, rules that they have to follow. Um, Again, I'll get into a little bit later, like what they're supposed to be. But yeah, what was your more impression about that? Like any more impressions? Well, I know we had a lot of negative impressions about what was going on. For one, um, the family that was living there, the five kids, um, the mother was like off at work all the time and her, was it her husband? Were they married? I think it was like her baby daddy. Her baby daddy. He was there and he was like the sixth kid. He seemed to do nothing. He slept <laughs> till noon. He'd get up like to make a bowl of cereal. We'd see the kids just wandering around doing whatever and he'd still be asleep, you know, then there's a baby in there and everything. The kids, like most kids I've met, were really nice, um, willing to help out. But I remember Teresa, like you got into a big like the mother came out one time and like confronted you and like, are you telling my kids to wash dishes? Are you giving my kids chores? And the kids seemed to be fine with it. Um, but Teresa was in a friendly way, like kind of showing them like, you can, you can clean up after yourself. Here's like, you know, what you can do to help. And the kids seem to be happy to have interaction, which has been my experience with kids in general. Um, just to have interactions with people to do new things. And I remember being a kid and feeling that way. Um, but yeah, the mother was just overworked, confrontational, hostile. She seemed to be the leader of the house. And it turned out that there wasn't even good communication with her about Teresa being there to pet sit. Yeah, right, because there is a mother of five children, well, you could say six with her baby daddy, and then there are the two women that are running the house. And so it's this kind of interesting dynamic where they're hiring a pet sitter to watch people um, and their house and their pets when... As far as I could tell, the woman and her children were, I mean, they might have a different idea of what clean and and doing chores looks like, but they seemed perfectly capable and probably would have appreciated the $50 a night if you're going to pay somebody to do the things that you really should be doing anyway. Yeah, that was my first big negative impression was like, wow, they didn't even communicate to this woman. I mean... What did they think was going to happen? It's almost like they were afraid to talk to this super aggressive woman and just kind of left it to Teresa, like, good luck, (laughs) you know? And, like, it seems like anybody could have foreseen this was going to be a problem because this woman was like, well, we can do that. We can feed the animals. And she's trying to make money, and they're paying an outsider, Teresa, $50 a day to do this, whereas it seems like this woman's family could have benefited from that. Yeah. And if... 
the people that left, which seemed to be my impression, uh, the two women did not think that her family was capable of performing these tasks. They weren't, didn't seem to have the courage to tell her this directly, to communicate this with her. So it just fell on Teresa, which I thought was pretty screwed up. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it just seemed to be really chaotic. It seemed to be, uh, I don't know, and the fact that they were on a cruise with this, like, apparently Asian girl that, like, they would kind of uh, take around with them, you know, like, to their, <laughs> their expensive vacations. Yeah. I don't know. It all seemed pretty screwed up. And then there was another woman a little bit later on that moved in there. And uh, apparently she wanted some of these, like, benefits of, like, helping to get a resume, helping to get rides to possibly get work. And they're gone. They're just gone. Um, yeah, it was it was a messed up situation. It was really sloppy. I felt like it sounded good what they were trying to do, the right. initial incentive. But it's like I got the feeling they didn't have any follow through to make it happen like any of the hard shit that has to happen the the hard conversations and stuff now i will say with that first catholic worker house i've heard nothing but good things about them in pittsburgh i've never actually been to their house um but there were a couple of christian anarchists and this was my first introduction to christian anarchists um and they look kind of like your typical anarchist ripped up clothes kind of grungy you know kind of like just your typical picture of like anarchists and they would come to my survival overnights, and I didn't even realize they were staying at the Catholic Worker House till they told me. And they had no—they uh, were there to learn. They didn't talk any more about Christian anarchism than I asked, which unfortunately, again, was not nearly enough. They were into all kinds of upcycling way before I knew anything about upcycling. Like, I remember the guy had made a knife sheath out of a tire that was super cool and just all kinds of stuff like that. And, um, yeah, they were really open-minded. They were asking me at one time, like, what I thought about theft, the morality of theft. And another guy who was also a Christian, more your stereotypical, I don't know what denomination he was, let's say Baptist, that kind of, that kind of Christian, they got into a debate because he butted in and like, oh, of course, like, stealing is wrong. Like, if I work, nobody should be able to take that. And, you know, they've actually... To my way of thinking, these Christian anarchists are more embodying that poverty. You know, they were really embracing the, the poorness of it. So to them, they were kind of questioning, like, when do you break the law? What is this justice of Jesus, for instance? But they were really cool people. And, um, yeah, one of my big regrets about meeting them was they had so much to share. And... Like I've done so much of my life, I was focused on what I was focused on, and anything that didn't fit in with that, I was like, oh, I don't really, I'm not into using litter, you know, like I'm trying to learn primitive skills right off the land, just nature-based stuff. And I could learn so much from them, because they were willing to learn from me, and they did. They benefited from our interaction, whereas I didn't, and it was all my fault. Um, one of my teachers I talk about, Tom Brown Jr., he describes his teacher, Grandfather Stocking Wolf, as someone who always learned everywhere he went, and he taught in one of the classes I took with him, the way of the scout. You know, a scout, no matter what you encounter, learn, learn. Every knowledge, every bit of knowledge can be helpful. I think of all the jobs I've had, doing electrical work, doing construction. I could be an expert in sabotaging buildings right now. <laughs> but I was like, eh, I'm not really into construction, so I didn't learn it. And, um, yeah, that's the big lesson when I think of these two Christian anarchists who were staying at the Catholic Worker House. Um, 
that's the big thing I walk away with is like, man, if you encounter that old man who's just talking your ear off and doesn't want to listen to a damn thing you say, ah, oh man, every opportunity you can to like listen, to learn from people, that knowledge can come in handy. And uh, I try to remember that. I'm still not good at that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess if I if I didn't say it explicitly earlier, the Catholic workers consider themselves Christian anarchists. And um, I'll mention that a little bit, uh, explain that a little bit more later. But yeah, these are supposed to be um, Catholic worker houses, hospitality toward those on the margins of society. Um, and it's a way for Catholic workers to put words into action with their houses of hospitality, the Catholic worker houses, um, as well as farm communes. And I believe where those Christian anarchists were um, that you're talking about, that's a, a farm. I'm not 100% sure because I haven't been there, but I was like looking at the, the description yeah. and it, it seemed like they had uh, like maybe nine permanent volunteers, which maybe those two are part of the permanent residence. They definitely gave the impression of the type of people that were really like organizing something. Yeah. And you can actually, um, if you're interested, I know we're kind of painting this in a bad light, but like I said, every Catholic worker house seems to be running on their own, like their own way of doing things. Oh, if I am painting this in a bad light, I don't mean to be. I think this is actually a really good thing that's happening. And especially anybody on the tramp, um, hoboing around, this is a really a good thing to uh, check in with because these are people that are really um, putting themselves maybe even more than a lot of Christians. And Christians, I found in general, even the ones that, whose philosophy I absolutely despise, um, I find this group of people to be pretty damn helpful when you're out on the road. When we go to food pantries and um, even people that pick us up to give us rides, there's a pretty high percentage of them that are Christians say nothing about the Catholic Worker House, who I think is even more out there trying to help. You know, if you showed up and told them what you were doing, I, I would imagine these are people that would, like, give you some food, like, see how they could help. Yeah, and so if you want to look to see if there is one in your area, or maybe a place where you're wanting to go, and you need a... I would say this is more like a... It's supposed to be a temporary place to stay, unless... You are like volunteering there a lot and then, you know, you decide like this is the life I want to lead and then you maybe become a permanent volunteer and take like that voluntary vow of poverty. But um, www.catholicworker.org is their website, um, catholicworker.org. And then I think just like click the locations or whatever, find something in your area. And they're not just in the United States. I think there was some, there was some like in the UK, maybe some in Australia or something like that. But yeah, it seems pretty cool. And in the 1930s, of course, in the Great Depression here in the United States, they were helping uh, serve like 3,400 people a day, for example. Um, there was kind of like a bubble of these Catholic worker movements happening. And then because they're pacifists, when World War II happened, it actually fell out of favor because everybody was like stopping everything they were doing to join the war efforts. And of course the, the Catholic workers are pacifists. So they're like, no, why don't you like tear down those posters and tell your sons and your brothers don't join. And everybody was like, oh, I think we're taking a step back from that. Communists. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, their beliefs, they have a number of beliefs in the Catholic worker movement. Um, these are some that I really like. Personal obligation of looking after the needs of our brother and sister. Well, if I can interject something, you haven't really talked much about the Christian anarchism. I wonder if, like, is that sort of like a foundation? Because when you were telling me about this and the stuff you're about to go into, it felt like what was really cool is their their foundation of Christian anarchism, how that led, like, to this stuff. It's not just, you know, every church I go into talks about we're here to help people, we're here to be humble, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that they came from an anarchist place, it seems like they see Jesus as an outlaw and they see their duty as opposing government, man's government. I'll oh, get, you want to get into yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, let me later? get to that in just a moment. Okay, you got this organized. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so personal obligation of looking after the needs of our brother. Houses of hospitality, like I keep saying, for immediate relief of those in need. And establishment of farming communes where each one works according to his ability and receives according to his need. There I go, gendering it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and another belief that they had, creating a new society within the shell of the old with the philosophy of the new. And that philosophy is Christian anarchism, which I'll get to in just a moment. But I want to look at that again. And Go. that reminds me of Daniel Quinn. Daniel Quinn says something similar about the, the, what is it, the new within the shell of the old. Yeah. He says if you want to, like, God, I wish I could remember exactly how he said it. But pretty much, instead of fighting what exists, you're not going to get far with that. Instead, build something new that makes the old idea or system obsolete. So it sounds to me like, and I think he might have come from... Uh, Daniel Quinn used to be some kind of, like, Trappist monk or something, and isn't that part of Catholicism? Monks? I mean, there are monks in different religions, but possibly, yeah. Yeah, so these uh, two philosophies might share the same root. Yeah, and um, that creating a new society within the shell of the old, that also came from the IWW, the uh, International Workers of the World, the Wobblies, um, which were big. They were kind of fading out towards the 40s, I guess. Hobos! Yeah. Um, that new society, though, creating a new society, it was almost like these Christian anarchists, the Catholic workers, they were introducing something that was so old, like tribalism, that it was considered new because it had been so, so far removed from our society. And like Gumby keeps alluding to this Christian anarchism, so I guess I'll get into that Um, now. So a word on Christian anarchism. I don't know that much about it, but from what I've read, um, it sounds pretty interesting. So Christian anarchists, they don't believe in any authority but God. Um, So no government, no politics. In fact, they use quotes and passages from the Bible that explicitly tell Christians not to follow these idolaters because politicians, um, capitalists, they're seeking things that aren't, that Jesus didn't want us to seek. Yeah. When you think about it, this is really like in line with walking the path of Jesus. Cause you know, I, it's so easy when things get 
in history to kind of like take them out of context. But Jesus was a man who like, I think about if we went back in time 2,000 years, we might not understand the Roman language, but we would recognize civilization. We would see the hierarchy. We would see the really poor, underserved, who are getting exploited and cheated. We would see the people with way too much who are willing to do anything to keep their power. We would even see the distractions that they use to keep us preoccupied. Wasn't the, what is that saying, bread and circuses, the gladiators? You know, just keep people, like, entertained, keep them preoccupied. And I like to think, and the army, you know, enlist in the army, enlist in the army. Here's your chance. Go fight. Expand. Expand the empire. And this is where Jesus came from. And, like, to really put that in context of, like, civilization did not look so different then that it does now really, to me, underscores, like, how brave Jesus was. Because imagine one of us standing up and breaking the laws, you know, even when they threaten you to keep breaking the laws, even when you know that your execution is in front of you to keep breaking those laws. So, uh, God, I lost the thread of what I was saying. I need to quit drinking beer before I do these podcasts. <laughs> You're drinking beer while we're doing the podcast. I'm drinking some damn good beer, too, by the way. <laughs> so, this is my commercial for, uh, what is it, Imperial IPA? Uh, Voodoo Ranger. Voodoo Ranger. It's really good shit. It's 9%. But anyway... Um, <laughs> I'm sure Jesus would approve. <laughs> I know where I was going. Oh. So, yeah, these Catholic workers who are saying, like, don't just, you know, go along with the civilization and everything. That is the essence of Jesus. It's not these more common Christians that we uh, are more familiar with in our society that are actually the fabric of civilization. Yeah. Every president has claimed to be a Christian. You need to be what is called a Christian to actually get anywhere in this society as far as like a really elevated role. So I really applaud that. Yeah, because Jesus was like not the original anarchist, but he was a pretty big time anarchist. Yeah, he was a complete outlaw. You yeah. know, Jesus was a badass. <laughs> he was, you know, I, I grew up hating Christianity. And what I've realized as I've gotten older is I actually find so much value in Jesus and in the Bible, I believe the Bible has been uh, um, bastardized. Bastardized. There's a lot of shit in there. I mean, when you got in one, on one hand, turn the other cheek, and on the other hand, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. That tells me somebody has started putting things in the Bible Jesus didn't say. And you can you can pretty much pick them out if you just turn your damn brain on of the stuff that doesn't belong in there. Mm. Um, but what seems to be the essence of Jesus and what he taught is really good. I feel like it's all the things we want, the way we're living, the simplicity, the poverty, the turning away from civilization, the rejecting all of man's laws that are always crooked and skewed to keep those in power in power and saying, what are God's laws? Yeah. Because God's laws, God, if God created this planet, and again, you know, some of you might say, oh, I don't agree that God created the planet. Right now, I'm not saying whether he did or not. I'm just going off on a philosophical tangent here. But if he did, it makes sense that you would follow those laws to take care of the very things he created with his own hand or her own hand. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think it's a gender thing. <laughs> but, I mean, I just love that. I love that when I started delving into what the hell does a Christian anarchist, what does that mean? Because I've always thought that was an oxymoron. <laughs> the government is Christian. But I, I realized that it's not. That Jesus was an outlaw. He was an anarchist. He stood up and even died to break the law because he said, I do not respect your law. That is not the law. Mm -hmm. I think that's awesome. 
Yeah, I'll give you a, a small example of that. Um, one of the other beliefs that uh, Christian anarchists and, and Catholic workers alike, they believe in works of mercy. And I didn't know what that was, so I had to look it up. And basically it's like, you know, again, doing good, um, trying to help your brother, your sister. Um, and and that voluntary vow of poverty is pretty big in... Uh, in both, in Catholic worker and Christian anarchists. But, again, the bastardization of things. You look at uh, the social works of mercy that are kind of like the modern uh, take on it. And somebody has written in there, um, like especially for Methodism, like the Methodists, to make as much money as possible so that you can help your brother. So that you can help the poor. And it's like, no, wait a, wait a minute. This is like the opposite of what Jesus was saying. But now all of a sudden, that's that's what we're supposed to be doing. So now we're all, you know, should be making as much money as possible so that we can help the poor. Yeah, when I started reading a little bit about Christian history, <clears throat> what happened was, well, what happened was, mm-hmm. Jesus kind of launched this movement of anti-civilization. It rejected all the things civilization is hinged on. Um, Wealth, accumulation, all this stuff. He's saying you don't need it. Not only do you not need it, it's going to keep you from getting into heaven. And you can see heaven as that pie in the sky, but I like to see heaven as just like, it's already here. It's right now. It's Heaven is the way you live in this world. Um, And it was co-opted. The Romans, instead of fighting it, which they realized, oh shit, we already got a martyr on our hands, so that's given strength to this movement, um, let's just change what it means. So they co-opted it, and we still see that. And if you take all the lessons from the Bible and, like, oh, shit. make them... Do you want to go uh, put him on a leash? Come here. Come here. We have a dog sighting. So if you take all the lessons from the Bible, and if you were going to create a group of people that were the exact antithesis of all the things Jesus taught, you would have the modern Christian. They are the Antichrist, to my way of thinking. So, you've got, you know, Jesus encouraging poverty, and we see the wealthiest people in our culture are Christians. Um, You've got Jesus encouraging forgiveness, turn the other cheek. You know, you never see a picture of Jesus with a sword. He wasn't a warrior. He actively discouraged that kind of thing, serving the government, the imperial reach. And yet, how often is Christianity um, interwoven with our military? How many soldiers think they're working for Jesus? It's insane. And even right down to using the Lord's name in vain. I get so sick of people thinking that's something as simplistic as saying, God damn, what a juvenile thought. It's saying that you're a Christian using his name in vain when you are exactly spreading the opposite message, accumulation, wealth, violence, um, poverty, you know, like, and and just the, uh, oh, what am I trying to say? Another thing to me is, uh, you know, with that poverty comes a faith, a faith in nature. What wealth means to me is that you don't have faith. You are hoarding. You are gathering up in for the morrow, you know, as St. Matthew chapter 6 talks about, gathering more than you need because you have no faith. Christians are the devil, are the Satan that was warned in the Bible. 
So I find that all really interesting. Thanks for getting Sherlock tied up. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> so we were talking about the Catholic worker houses and the Catholic worker movement. But who started that? Who started all that shit? Um, two people. Like Jesus. I'm, like I mentioned, three people. Dorothy Day and Peter Marin. So Dorothy Day, she was an American journalist, social activist, and anarchist. Um, she led a, quote, bohemian youth, a.k.a. she slept around. Um, she ended up getting pregnant out of wedlock. Um, she had the baby and decided to become a Catholic Christian without in any way abandoning her social and anarchist activism. For example, she is a Christian anarchist at this point, and she is... Um, helping out with the women's suffrage movement. Not because she's going to vote. You understand? But she feels like, who has the right to tell us that we can't? She never once voted in her life, but she did support that social movement and that activism. And that's part of the uh, Christian anarchism is not voting, right? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, like I said, they believe that politicians and, and the government is all idolatry because there's only one authority, and that's God. And it makes complete sense, because when you look in the Bible, they warn you, like, if you serve mammon, you do not serve the Lord. Mammon is man. Mm-hmm. What's more serving mammon than the, the actual politicians? <laughs> they are men. And Dorothy um, came home one day in December of 1932. She had just prayed for inspiration for her future works. And she came home and found a man standing in her kitchen waiting for her. Um, this man was Peter Marin. He was sent by one of her uh, publishers because she was a journalist, right? And, or editors, I forget. And, you know, this editor of hers has said, you know, you should meet Dorothy. I think you two would, uh, you'd have some interesting conversations together. Now, Peter, um, he was about 20 years Dorothy's senior. Um, he was a French immigrant. He had he was one of twenty four children. Damn. Damn. Um, he was something of a vagabond. I imagine if you're one of twenty four children, you'd probably just want to leave your house. He had a brief stint in Saskatchewan, uh, where he tried homesteading, but he evidently got discouraged because it was hard. Um, and he also lost his partner, who he was doing this with, in a hunting accident. So he was like, uh, okay, maybe that's not what I'm supposed to do. Now, despite his lack of formal education, he was a man of deep intellect and decidedly strong views. Um, he was inspired by St. Francis of Assisi. And one of the things that he did was he gave Dorothy an extensive reading list to expand her awareness. Because he had a vision of social justice, of action, based on sharing of ideas of subsequent action by the poor to act on. So in other words, he didn't just want to talk about ideas. He wanted to put them into action. And not only did he want to put those ideas into action, he wanted to involve, what a novel idea, the very people that it's supposed to be helping. Not just giving them handouts and keeping them poor, but like trying to help them. And not to become rich, mind you but to help them to survive. Because he was like, he was into some survival stuff. 
So to survive and not become rich, that means not to need civilization, basically, right? Interesting way to put it. I'm not sure how he would have said it, but he had three um, basic tenets to his philosophy. He wanted to establish urban houses of hospitality for those people in immediate need in the city. He wanted to establish those rural farm communes to teach people from the city how to grow their own food so that, yeah, they wouldn't have to be a continuous, you know, sucking at the teat of society. And he also wanted to have roundtable discussions to to talk about and to really listen to people on how to do this. And I thought that was really cool. Um, both, oh, I would say Dorothy more so, but I think both Dorothy and Peter, because he was such a big influence on her, um, they were also anarcho-distributists, which was kind of considered a third way between capitalism and socialism. And while I don't really necessarily understand or agree with all of what I just said, I think it's interesting that they use the words third way um, because we often are pitted against things. Like we can have this way or the other way. It's either capitalism or socialism. And they're like, well, what if it's kind of a mixture of we can like all have property but it isn't that we have to pay for it. It's like we, we all get some property. Yeah, I think like from what you just said right off, one thing I really like is it seems a step closer to what I understand to be the teachings of Jesus. Um, you know, like Jesus is the anarchist. One thing that I'm critical of is I still feel like even though it's a step closer, it's still not walking the path of Jesus because what I see exemplified by Jesus is yourself taking a vow of poverty, giving it all up, living in faith, not living elevated above anyone, because I still see some taint in that, and I still see that in the Catholic worker house, but that's just one of my uh, critiques of it. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, too, because a lot of times, you know, we hear people like on the, what is that, green flame or deep green resistance, and they're like, we need to bring down civilization, but even... You know, as we we call him Uncle Ted Kaczynski said, let's take this uh, to a step that makes sense. Yeah, ever since reading that, I've been trying to say industrial society rather than civilization. Because one thing he said that I really liked is how are you going to get people not to form large groups and not to practice farming without becoming the technologically reliant enemy (laughs) that you just took down? So he's saying... Take on an enemy that's within reach. You just might. It's possible to take down all this crap that happened after industrial civilization or industrial society, which is pretty much civilization on steroids. He's saying maybe you can take out the steroids. Then let's look at civilization. But to say take down civilization, no wonder no one does anything. How the Mm -hmm. hell are you going to do that? And I think the Catholic worker movement was almost like an intermediate step to get to that living pre-industrial society or pre-industrial revolution. It's in like philosophy. Yeah, in in yes, of course in philosophy. Um, Dorothy Day admired America's efforts in general to take responsibility through the government, but ultimately in her heart she felt that charitable works were a personal decision that required the warmth of an individual. And that reminds me of that uh, line from Beggars of Life by Jim Tully, where he was talking about like who can love or who can help a mob. And so I, I found that really interesting that 
Dorothy always wanted to stay small. She wanted to like have one-on-one interaction, not just a huge charity. Um, and again, like I mentioned, Dorothy always credited Peter with the founding of this movement with which she's identified. Um, she, she wrote one time, like when people... Why is that? And feel free to come back to this if you're about to get into something and I'm derailing you. But why is she credited with that when she herself was trying to give the credit to Peter? Well, I don't know, is my first answer. Um, it's quite possible that maybe, you know, interacting with with Peter, maybe he was just like, I don't want to, like, you take the, you go for it. Because he actually did influence her, in, because she was a journalist, into writing The Catholic Worker, which is a, a paper, a newspaper, that you can get even to this day for one cent, for one penny. Um, Capitalist. Well, yeah. But she, um, she would say, like, when people would meet Peter, um, there was just something about him that really would change people, would awaken them. They would begin to see things become new. They would look at life in the light of the Gospels. And when Peter, um, his health started to decline, um, he started to lose his memory and he, you know, eventually succumbed to death as we all will. Um, people actually came to his funeral and were seen to be touching their rosaries to his hands as if he was like some kind of enlightened dude. And I haven't read a lot of what he's written. Um, I have read a lot of these easy essays that he wrote because they're easy to read. Um, but it does, really cool. but it does seem like he was onto something and maybe he was just one of those people that like, he synthesizes information really well. He, he boils it down. He's very clear. He doesn't like to use a lot of words to make himself sound grandiose. He's like the type of guy that would write a philosophy as a haiku. (laughs) And, uh, I thought that was really cool. And let me see if I have anything else to say about him. Yeah. I always love someone who can take a deep truth and turn it into a simple, a uh, simple thing, like you said, a haiku. And those easy essays, um, maybe I'll post a link to those on the catholicworker.org website. But um, here, actually, let me read one right now. I'll, I'll, I'll show you what I mean. I was going to save these for the end, but it seems to be fitting. So this one's called Better or Better Off. The world would be better off if people tried to become better. And people would become better if they stopped trying to be better off. For when everybody tries to become better off, nobody is better off. But when everybody tries to become better, everybody is better off. Everybody would be rich if nobody tried to be richer. And nobody would be poor if everybody tried to be the poorest. I love that. I just think, I mean, he was on to something. And like I said, there... um, There were a lot of works, uh, literary works that he recommended to Dorothy. And I don't know, maybe just through reading all of those, she also came to to be able to synthesize and realize um, what needed to be done with this Catholic worker movement. But yeah, so those are the two people that started it. And I just wanted to to say this because this is something else that Dorothy believed in. um, Communism versus Christianity. Communism. The object is to make the poor richer. 
versus Christianity. The object is to make the rich poor and the poor holy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's kind of like that easy essay influence. And again, I feel like there's such a deeper understanding of like Jesus in that. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm going to switch gears just a little bit here because what we've been talking about is a form of what uh, I was talking about earlier, mutual aid. But what is mutual aid? Um, A definition. A voluntary reciprocal exchange of resources and services for mutual benefit. Now that's interesting because when I looked on some of these websites that are saying that they are like mutual aid websites... I'm really seeing, like, requests for things, mostly money or money-related, and I'm not exactly seeing, like, what's so mutual about it. It just seems to me like, all right, um, I have some extra money, I can help this person, that maybe that makes me feel better. Maybe that's the mutual aid of it. Well, I remember when you were talking to me about, to me, about this earlier, there was that, uh phrase that you gave me that that was like kind of the goal of what they're after yeah and it seemed like what you just described is only half of it so i can see a mutual aid aspect to that in that you're asking your neighbors for help Mm -hmm. so the mutual aid would be that your neighbors rather than a government program gives you the money yeah but it's the second part of that thing that seems lacking and what can you well, yeah, sure. Let me let me read this first, and then I'll get to what you're talking about. So mutual aid projects are a form of political participation, and I was kind of scratching my head when I read that at first. These projects are a form of political participation in which people take responsibility for caring for one another and changing political conditions. And I would like to think that's getting rid of politics because we don't need the politicians. We don't need the government to take care of one another. Um, And this is what I think you were talking about. Mutual aid participants work together to figure out strategies and resources to meet each other's needs, such as food, housing, medical care, disaster relief, while organizing themselves against the system that created the shortage in the first place. And I think that's the part that is missing from these mutual aid Programs. I think they're doing a great thing, providing immediate relief, you know, during the pandemic, people are losing their jobs, they're trying to get people help with that, but they're forgetting, like, one of the the most delicious components of this mutual aid. It's to work so that we can stop being a part of this system that constantly fails us. Yeah, to go back to your example, I think, like, giving neighbors giving money so you can pay your rent uh, is the first part of that mutual aid beautifully. But the second part, getting free of the system, dependence on the system, it doesn't address that whatsoever because what you do when you end up paying your rent again is you're still in the system. You're still just waiting until the next thing that's out of your, your power, out of your control, that's the mistakes of man, um, those, those decisions, that might plunge you in another depression and, and still you're equally dependent. Mm-hmm. A quote from Peter Marin said, there is no unemployment on the land. And 
Of course, he was talking more about those farm communes. Peter Marin said that? Mm-hmm. Wow, I've run into that quote before. I didn't know. Well, maybe he was influenced by someone else. I don't know. I mean, he did have a lot of, like I said, that reading list. No, I think he did say that. I just found it in other context. That hmm. was, that's cool. Um, so, yeah. So, organizing against the system that created the shortage in the first place. Helping society, okay, society has its, you know, positive and negative connotations, to be more survivable in the long term. I like that. So if you want to call it society, fine, or, you know, tribe or or community, but to be more survivable in the long term, not to be this place where we're constantly running into problems because we're living way beyond our means. I'm not sure I like that. Maybe I misunderstand that. Because when I think it helps society to be more survivable in the long term, you know, my my first thought is, but what if society is actively murdering the world? So well, my individual survivability in society seems kind of minuscule compared to the society itself that's destroying the planet that I am equally hinged on. I can see what you're saying, and I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will agree, and I guess I'm just wondering, like, that word society is so loaded that if you were to have a, just for lack of a better word, a commune, would that be a society that isn't like the society that we're living in? Yeah. Or commune, at least for me, has some kind of negative connotations. Connotations. Connotations, thank you. Drunkard. Shut up. But uh, <laughs> tribe. Um, something else that mutual aid is... They are trying to avoid formalization. They're trying to be autonomous and flexible, like the Catholic worker houses, even though sometimes that can lead to be a clusterfuck. Um, (laughs) But hopefully, you know, with, with better organization, it could be a beautiful thing. And this I liked. Mutual aid uses community resources, creatively seeking free supplies. And I like that because it reminds me of... Uh, like being a consumer versus being creative. I love that I was able to get a lot of my clothes from clothing swaps where happen to be a bunch of women, um, but it could be anybody, gets together, they bring their clothes, and maybe they're not all ripped up and tattered like most of my clothes end up being. Um, And we can swap. You know, we can say like, oh, wow, this is a, a pretty decent pair of jeans, even though you might think it's not good anymore. I think it's great. Um, there's also these share pages that we've mentioned in, in podcasts um, from previous seasons where people might have uh, a lot of what? I don't know. A lot of food. Food. And they decide, you know, like, hey, I've got a bunch of this food. Come and get it. Or, hey, I've got a bunch of this food. I'm looking for some um, needles for sewing if anybody has those, not needles for drugs. Um, so you can swap, you can share, you can do whatever you want, whatever feels right in, in that moment to you. And another thing about mutual aid is it's help that's offered to anyone. And that seems to be, uh, currently a big issue with like queer and trans communities and stuff like that. Gumby and I have been fortunate enough, even though we're both queer and trans, that when we go, (laughs) I'll be queer. Okay. Um, when we go to like food pantries that are often put on by churches, they've not asked us too many questions. Like maybe there, there's been some intake, but, um, our favorite food pantry, they just basically take your name and your phone number, which we don't have. And they don't bother us. They don't like, 
um, tell us that we need to convert or, or we need to be prayed over. Yeah, of all the food pantries I've been to, which have been quite a few at this point, you know, there's some stuff on the walls, you know, that like encourage you to pray or whatever. But the only thing that's been pushed at me was one food pantry had us all pray before they started giving out the food. Okay, that was one. <laughs> yeah, and even that I didn't really mind. I mean, it's like they're doing me a favor. I just felt like it was, hell, it's the least I can do. It's sort of like when you go over somebody's house and they say they're about to treat you for dinner and they say, can you take off your shoes? What kind of fucking dickhead doesn't take off their shoes? You know? <laughs> so to me... I actually have very strong beliefs about not taking off my shoes. So to me, it didn't bother me. <laughs> but yeah, I, I have found that to be very light, which is not what I would have expected going to churches and food pantries. I would have thought like... You know, it's kind of like you have to go to church and everything. I have not found that to be the case. And I'm not saying there's not some manipulation there. Like they're kind of, you know, look who's helping you kind of thing. That's of why the Christians. But it's kind of there if you're in a place to get hooked by it. But if you're not getting hooked by it, it's it's a resource. And it it is... I don't know, something that I'm recognizing is there's something in that, that the people that you go to for help, if they are vastly of one philosophy, like, I resonate with Buddhism, I love Buddhism, and yet Buddhists don't do much to help the poor. So there's something <laughs> in Christianity, and rather than this polluted thing that gets called Christianity, i got to trace that back to Jesus. Um, so yeah, there's something there. Uh these are, what I'm going to rattle off right now are some very um, well-known, I guess, examples of mutual aid. Um, in fact, we just, I, I got this video of Democracy Now! And um, they were talking about mutual aid. Because I was trying to just look at all the resources I could uh, that describe what is mutual aid. And these two often crop up, um, one being influenced by the other. So in 1969, the Black Panthers, um, they were providing a free breakfast program for children. They fed 20,000 kids in 19 cities. And you know, that was in one year by the end of 1969. Um, people started in, in some areas, uh, they started wondering like, well, is this something that's like indoctrination? Because while the kids were eating breakfast, some Black Panthers would be talking about like black history, black pride, what to do like if a cop stops you, how to um, educate yourself in your culture, in this culture, to understand like what to do and how to survive. I would say the answer to that question is yes, it is indoctrination, but so what? Isn't you think everything... you're not being indoctrinated when you go in the grocery store? Exactly. And something else that happened was the government felt threatened that this Black Panther Party um, was able to feed children while they were not <laughs> able to take care of kids. Now, that's what they kind of say. Um, I believe uh, J. Edgar Hoover was still around and alive and... Um, started doing that counterintelligence COINTELPRO against the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers also organized clothing drives and clothing giveaways, medical care, um, like I said, education, um, self-defense, and they even had daycare so that the Black Panthers that were actively organizing and, and doing their thing 
they could leave their kids and the kids, once again, they were not being indoctrinated by the Eurocentric uh, education that we have in our schools and continue to have in our schools. They were learning about their own culture in their own way. Um, So I applaud that. I really like that. Um, In the 1970s, another group, the Young Lords, they were inspired by the Black Panthers, and they were a um, Puerto Rican-based group that, again, they were trying to increase the empowerment in their own neighborhoods. Free breakfast program for kids, free health clinic, free dental clinic, um, community testing for things like tuberculosis and lead poisoning. Because, you know, in these very poor, marginalized groups, we can't even, like, update the structure or care about what is being dumped into their water supply. Community daycare, again, free clothing, cleaning up garbage in neighborhoods that were neglected by city sanitation. So the Young Lords, Black Panthers, and then another group that um, probably more of our listeners are familiar with is Food Not Bombs. So Food Not Bombs being that group that uh, supposedly they they go and collect food that's going to be thrown away anyway, and they make vegan meals, I think, um, to distribute, even though they're often harassed by uh, the police for doing so, because you're not supposed to do that. Did you have something you were going to say? Well, I did, but now I have something else I was going to say. Oh, sure. One thing I like about all this, you know, you're talking about, it goes back to that, what is it, building the new within the shell of the old? Yes, but I really like that. I think there's something so subversive, so powerful in building something. I think that's one of the powers of the hobo, the tramp, the person hitting the road, is they're exploring a life that just by their being, their presence, they can role model perhaps something better. And I think that's something Jesus did, something Buddha did, something you know, Peace Pilgrim did. Walt Whitman. Yeah, Walt Whitman. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> well, he, he had that poem, that line in the poem. The poem, anyway, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, just I think that is so powerful because I think especially now what I run into is so much tearing down things. And what I see in that philosophy is nothing. Dead ends. Because how are you going to tear down the most powerful destructive machine ever built? The machine of this empire. But you can start to build something else. You can start not to need the machine at all. So I see empowerment there. I see something really powerful and inspiring in that. Yeah, and I was going to name off a few more um, that are that are smaller movements, like Dorothy Day wanted to keep things small. So I mentioned the uh, Facebook pages. One that we were a part of, it used to be called Bull City Swap, and I don't know why they changed it, but now it's called Bull City Shares. And the reason why I'm telling you this is not because um, you can necessarily join, because they do check for like what your location is. But if you're interested in setting something up, maybe you can contact the, the administrators of that page or the organizers, although they are kind of like uh, a little bit too structured. Or just start something by a different name in your neighborhood. Because well, yeah. it's easy to create your own Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like if you want to see like how other people do it, they are very structured. Like they have like four pages of rules. But basically it's a page where people in your immediate community, you don't want to be driving like an hour away to get stuff. But it's like, I have this, does anybody need it? That way you're not feeding the system. Little free libraries. Gumby loves these. It's like a little 
mailbox, they fancier, a little bit fancier than a mailbox, and you put books in them. I'm reading Voltaire from a little free library right now, and uh, yeah, it's been cool. Awesome. And little food, little free food pantries too. Same concept. They're like tiny little houses on a like a mailbox post. And I want to give a shout out to Franklin, North Carolina, who at their visitor center, right as you come into town, have both a little free library and a little free food pantry. But nobody seems to be using these little free free pantries. Every one that Teresa and I have encountered, we put food in there. We come back like a month or two later. It's our food still in there. We're getting our food back. Well, I think it's really good, and I actually took some food um, from that little free food pantry, and I ended up passing it along to some friends that we met in Cherokee. So I'm using them, so I'm glad for them. The thing that I have that's kind of a beef, and again, I don't want to tear stuff down, but let's not stop at giving free food. Why don't we start educating on how to forage, how to sustainably grow your own food, even roadkill preparation and identification, if it's going to be good or not. Um, You know, the free clothes, like I said, free clothing swap. But how do you mend your clothes? Can you upcycle them from existing cloth? And I'm, I'm not just talking about patches. I'm talking about oh, I really love this shirt, but it's not working for me anymore. Can I turn it into something else that I can wear? Or is this so far gone, but I hate to throw it out. Can I use this to make a thread or some sort of yarn that I can then knit or crochet with? Again, that uh, those websites for mutual aid, they're talking about like connecting donors of money with people who need rent money. And that's all fine and good, but what about learning how to live with less? Whether that's backpacking, whether that's like, you know, doing a temporary stay at a Catholic worker house or something, but learning how to live with less. And that, uh, we were talking earlier about that second step of escaping society, learning those and learning transferable skills such as foraging. Did you want to say anything else about that? Um, the only thing that's coming to mind right now, based on what we talked about earlier, was uh, we were saying, like, for instance, when I met those Christian anarchists, I wasn't interested in upcycling because I saw the use of litter as not long-term. Screw that. I just wanted to learn how to use what was in the woods because that would be there as long as I am, as long as my species is. But now I think differently. I think the freedom is whatever works now. So I applaud those Christian anarchists and their upcycling because that gives you freedom now. And whatever that that skill, those skills that give you independence and autonomy, they are always flexible. They always need to change. Your summer survival skills are going to be different from your winter survival skills are going to be different from when you migrate to this other location are going to be different from a particularly rainy year. Um, climate change, anything that happens. So I totally embrace the upcycling now. Um, that's the only thing that really comes to my mind. Yeah, you were talking earlier too, just like I said, common goals. Like if. Oh yeah. So for instance, I don't consider myself a Christian, though. I want to mention. Well, I guess I'll mention it right now. I used <laughs> to read a lot of uh, Buddhist stuff and. Part of that was like reading books by the Dalai Lama. And one thing he said is, I don't encourage people to be a Buddhist. I encourage you to embrace the religion in your own culture. And at first I was like, well, I guess that would be Christianity for me. And I freaking hate Christianity. But 
the more I learned about Buddhism, the more if I looked for it, I saw that everything I liked about Buddhism is potentially in the Christian philosophy. It's just that the people that are calling themselves Christians are not embodying that. How much more powerful might it be as Gumby within a Christian nation if I embraced the religion, I already had a common ground with people, a common vocabulary, a common belief system, and I can indeed find everything that I care about and love in that belief system. And I think that's probably true, whether you're Muslim, whether you're uh, it's Judaism, Buddhism, wherever you're at, whatever that belief system is in place, if you look for it, don't look to the people and their interpretation of it. You interpret it. Go back to the teacher. And I was thinking how much more powerful it would be if I embraced Christianity and became a Christian anarchist and lived exactly the way we're living and still found all the goals that I already have. But just by putting it in that light and recognizing that that's kind of arbitrary, whatever light, they're all saying the same thing. But for the sake of communication, that common umbrella. So to me, that's a really powerful thing. I was think I was talking about Max Wilbert. He calls himself, he's the uh, one of the hosts of Deep Green, uh, The Green Flame. And he calls himself an organizer. Now, I don't know what he actually does out there. I haven't followed up on it. But one thing he says he does is he sees that different groups of people have the same beef, the same aim, and he finds the common ground to unite them. That is a powerful goal. And I see that with the Christian anarchist, um, with this Catholic worker house. If they're trying to break free of, of the system... That's exactly what I want to do. So why would I not form bridges with these people? Why would I not find common ground? Yeah, and um, I actually forgot another example of what I would consider mutual aid or like people mutually benefiting. It's kind of awkward to put it in here, but I'll just say um, I've been to like music festivals or other types of weekend retreats, and they've actually had people man or woman, a, um, a medical tent, like a first aid tent. And those people were in general herbalists. Maybe you might've had a doctor in there too, but like, what was the incentive? Cause people are often like, well, how are we going to get medical care? You know what the herbalists and the doctors alike enjoyed? They enjoyed the musicians. They enjoyed the artists. Both of those groups were valued. So don't think just because you don't know how to build a shelter or like, you know, tan hides that you don't have any worth. Someone out there thinks that what you've got going on is awesome. And I feel like that tribe, that having meaning and purpose in life is, we really got to remember that. And I would say, don't be intimidated if you don't think of yourself as an artist. I've been in a, uh, the Buffalo Field Campaign actually in Montana and what I offered them, I didn't have anything especially creative or any way I shined. I did the shit nobody else wanted to do. I emptied the like bathroom trash, which, you know, I, I burned the toilet paper. I did the stuff that like was getting neglected. I just looked for those jobs that nobody was doing. And by the time I left, I was a highly valued member of that community just by looking for something that anyone could have done. But nobody was doing. Yeah. So don't be intimidated if you're not a doctor or an artist. <laughs> it takes all kinds. Yeah. You've got something to trade. This mutual support is the foundation of tribe. And uh, whether we go there consciously or whether we wait for ourselves to be so torn down and come crawling there because it's all that's left, we're going to wind up there. It's the natural state of the human being. And I feel like that's what people like Jesus were trying to show us. Mm-hmm. 
And I'll um I'll just summarize kind of the pros and cons of of what we've already talked about. For example, like the Catholic Worker Movement, Mutual Aid, these are really awesome ideas. I think it's amazing that people can open up a room in their house or their entire house to help others. It might not be great in practice, like so many things, because people need strength, otherwise they're taken advantage of. But I feel like if you do have that strength and you are able to do that, even though we're still talking about owning a house and being in the system, I think that is a really great thing. Changing the minds, um, like Daniel Quinn has written about, can we first change the minds to change our culture? And I'm not sure if we have time for that. Like, what are we doing now? So I feel like that temporary housing or like the clothing swaps and whatnot are steps. They're tiny baby steps, but they are doing something, putting those words into action. And the third uh, kind of, I don't know if it's pros and cons or if it's just kind of a, a question there. Can we really help people? And Gumby looks like you want to say something to that. Well, I've questioned the idea of helpers for a long time. I'm not sure that we can help people or teach people. I think there are only students, not not many opportunities to be teachers, unless you run into a student. And likewise, there's not many opportunities to be helpers unless you run into someone who's like really um, asks you for it, who's placed in your path, who the Spirit leads you to. I think what often happens with the helpers is we do more damage. Some questions I have are, when do you become an enabler? You know, like these Catholic worker houses. Some of these people, I feel like they're not really being helped. Um, They're kind of just being kept from hitting rock bottom. And Mm. maybe by hitting rock bottom, if you really believe in a destiny or a God or something of that nature, maybe that's where you start to learn. You need to hit that rock bottom. Yeah. So I'm not sure that the helpers with the best intentions, because when I read history, I see helpers everywhere. And almost always it turns into something bad, even though I can find the good intentions behind every single thing I find in history. And I'm talking about everything, even from the Ku Klux Klan to the Nazi party. I can find the good intentions behind it, but look what it turned into. Mm. So I'm very skeptical of the helpers, even Kudzu being introduced into this country, for instance. Hmm. Helpers. Um, I wish, you know, we don't have access to Wi-Fi as much as we would like to to prepare for these podcasts. But there's a part in a Carlos Castaneda book, one of the, the teachings of Don Juan books, where he moves a snail out of the sidewalk. And he thinks he's doing a good thing. He's Carlos. being a helper. Carlos does this. Mm-hmm. And Don Juan, his teacher, says, what did you do? And he's basically saying, how do you know you, d- you don't understand the life of a snail? You might have just moved him right into harm's way. You might have made his life much worse. And what about his warrior's journey? Wherever he's trying to get to, think about how many things had to be in place for him to reach that sidewalk. And now you came, and it was his destiny to meet an imbecile that screwed it all up. Because Carlos was like, oh, my God, okay, uh, you convinced me. I'll move him back. And, and Don Juan's like, it's too late. Don't it was move his destiny. Again. He met an imbecile, and now he's got to deal with that. And I love that because we take so much for granted that, like, 
We can be helpers. But what Don Juan's pointing out to him is you're imposing your values, but what the hell do you know? Mm. Do any of us know where we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do? Who are we to help? So I feel pretty good when I meet somebody with a direct need that's been placed on my path, a hungry person, and I have two sandwiches, for instance. It's pretty clear that person needs one of my sandwiches. But when I start going much beyond that, I'm getting into some shaky territory because there is a whole lot of that universe out there that I don't understand, and I don't know what might look bad to me that's actually for the greater good. So I'm skeptical of the helpers, and I think that's one of my critiques of the Catholic Worker House is I think a lot of them are setting themselves up as helpers, and some good com- can come from that. Again, I'm not criticizing them. I applaud what they're doing. But when you renounce everything, like Peace Pilgrim and Jesus, you're not in a place to be exploited. You're not in a place to impose your values. You're kind of just dealing with the people in your path. The hierarchy is no longer, I guess. Yeah, so I'd be skeptical of being a helper. I wouldn't run out and be a helper because who knows what help someone needs. When it looks like somebody's in that darkest place in their life, they're strung out on crack, they're about to kill themselves, that might be the dark before the dawn. Tomorrow might be the greatest day of their life and the beginning of them being a tremendous person. And if you intervene, who knows? Who knows what you're doing? We don't know the shadows that we cast when we light a candle. Ooh. That was from Wizard of Ursi, Ursula, Ursula Le Guin. Okay. <laughs> I thought you made that up. That was pretty good. Yeah, I felt bad about trying to own that. <laughs> Did you have anything else you wanted to... Just real quick. I know we're at the end of our time and we're trying to wrap it up, but it just so happened, like I crank up the van every couple of days while we're out here. We got the van parked at our campsite oh, yeah. just to make sure that the battery's charged. And there was this interview on NPR um, with all these Christian scholars, and they were talking about racism and Christianity. And a couple of things that got brought up that I thought was interesting for this episode. Um, they mentioned a Pence speech, a Mike Pence speech. Vice President. Vice President Pence. And he was quoting the Bible, and instead of saying, like, he, it was a direct quote from the Bible, instead of saying Jesus at one point, he substituted the words old glory. Yeah. And I found that so alarming, how Christians are so manipulated now, especially right now, to disregard the teachings of Jesus in favor of this bullshit nationalism. Guess what? Jesus never came to America. America is not in the Bible. America is not the Holy Land. And to not be able to wrap your minds around that um, infuriates me. And they were, they were these Christian scholars, as they heard the speech, were saying, I-, I couldn't believe it, what I heard. Like, I had to go back and read it again to make sure. Did he just, like, read from the Bible and substitute American propaganda for the words <laughs> Jesus? Votes. Now, this isn't Trump bashing, because this is what all politicians do. The Democrats did it with the blacks. The Republicans now are noticing, wow, we've got a powerful support base with nationalists, maybe with white supremacists. So in order for them to keep voting for us so we can keep our power and advance our own agenda, let's start catering things to them. Also in the speech, he mentioned law and order, which was a term coined by George Wallace um, during a lot of the integration 
segregation racial events in the 60s. And actually, the Republican Party apologized for that term. I think they said in 2015. But here goes Mike Pence, you know, with all this uh, George Floyd shit going on in protest, bringing in the term law and order, a very carefully used, poignant term. Um, and my God, you know, like I've been talking a lot about how much I respect Jesus and everything, but for most of you Christians, you talk about there's one freaking book, the book. Everybody should read the book, bring in the book to the prisons. You got one book to read and you guys can't wrap your minds around the one freaking book. (laughs) It's war. It's pretty damn clear. Renounce wealth. Forgive your enemies. Show love. It's there over and over and over because I think Jesus knew there's going to be a lot of stupid fucking people trying to understand what he said. You are the stupid fucking people. One book. One book. Anyway. Another thing they uh, mention, and I like this because this was uh, from a pastor. You know, she's actually leading a church. And she's saying Christianity has been so abused, so used to justify things like slavery and white supremacism, that maybe it's time to revamp Christianity. And she was partly addressing a black woman who was saying, I don't understand why so many blacks have embraced Christianity, the very religion that was used by the oppressor to justify our enslavement and so much ugly stuff. And so this white pastor was saying, I agree. I wonder if maybe more churches need to start looking to the black church to get a little more of the message of what Jesus was about, because Jesus was a liberator. One of his first sermons was about freeing the oppressed. And I think about Nat Turner. He was a literate slave who led a slave revolt because they were getting him to use the Bible to preach to other slaves that were starting to feel unrest, to tell them, no, God wants you to obey your master. But his reading of the Bible was exactly that. He was like, wait a minute, there's also stuff in here about liberation, about rebellion. Those are the things as a literate slave. This is one of the reasons why it was after Nat Turner, a law was passed that slaves were not allowed, you sh- you can't t- teach a slave how to read. It led to a revolt. That to me is where the black Christianity comes from, because I wondered the same damn thing. How come so many black people embrace Christianity? What the fuck is going on there? That's what the slave owners are reading to you. But then I think about Nat Turner. I think some of these people are tuning in to the liberation of Christianity. There was another message not being taught there. Mm. And maybe in these black churches, and I've been to a black church one time. I was walking on the uh, Appalachian Trail, and I came to this place in Virginia called Rusty's Hard Time Hollow. And it was, like, made for people that are hiking the Appalachian Trail. I got there on a Sunday, and he loaded us all up into his van, which was covered with footprints. Mm -hmm. He painted footprints all over it. And he drove us to an all-black church. We were the only white people there. He gave us each a dollar to put in the collection plate. And I experienced that energy of why he went there. The joy, the celebration. It was not like the white churches I'd been to before. There was something there that was alive instead of the dead dogma I find in a lot of the white churches. So, I don't know, that got me thinking about that, that NPR interview. And I like the idea of revamping Christianity. Maybe it's time to trash what's getting called Christianity. It has been abused, drugged through the mud, and maybe it's so polluted, it's not serving us anymore. But she's not giving up on Christ. She says, what if we revamp it and distinguish ourselves as the followers of Christ? We're no longer Christians, we are the followers of Christ. Interesting. And I thought that was pretty powerful. And um, 
One last thing, I just want to recommend a book that I read written by a Christian scholar. Um, The premise of this Christian scholar was that God, supposedly, according to what the Bible teaches us, is omniscient. He's everywhere. So why shouldn't I be able to find God in every religion if I look for it? If I don't see God in a religion, the failing is in me, not the religion. And so he started studying aspects of Buddhism. And he wrote this book called, and I think it's called this, I think if you Google this, you'll find it if if I've come close to this title, and I can't remember his name. But the title was something like, The Ox Herder and the Good Shepherd. And he was going through the 10 ox herding pictures. If you're familiar with Zen, it's a uh, it's a painting that was done. I don't I don't remember when, a long time ago, that was meant to depict the, the path to enlightenment in the parable of a man trying to catch his runaway ox. And the ox was a parable of the mind. And he was talking about the wisdom that Christians can find from this as well. And that book, I read it over twice in a row, and I never do that. Um, it was powerful. It's a really good book. So if you're like me, if you've grown up with a bunch of bastard Christians that are hypocrites, that do everything opposite from what's in the Bible, don't dismiss it so quickly. Jesus, whatever that teaching stemmed from, whatever happened in history, and we can never be sure 2,000 years ago, something powerful happened there. And something powerful is preserved there. And When I think about what Teresa and I are trying to do out here in escaping society, I find everything that we want to embody in those teachings and everything that we want to reject is also what Jesus warned us against. So I feel like the more powerful, wise person is someone who has the most teachers, not someone who has the least. So I embrace Buddha. I embrace Jesus. I embrace anybody that has a a message that I feel the truth in. And that's all I want to say. Well, that's amazing. Um, <clears throat> we're going to wrap this episode up with a listener write-in, and then um, I'll do another easy essay for the very last thing. So this one comes from Martha Ruse from Hampshire, England. And if you've been listening, there's a lot of people with like the middle name Rose or last name Rose that are writing in. And I swear to God, we are not making these up. Martha Rose writes, finally found you on Facebook. Great to see more content faces of those who have educated and inspired me recently. Soon to be embracing a new life on the water, free of state and societal pressures. Tips for how to embrace the poverty and ignore the need for materialistic bullshit? <laughs> Martha Rose, I am really sorry. Gumby, oh, that was awesome. Gumby is, uh, he's insisting that I try to read these listener write-ins. A person is not separable from their <laughs> land. We need to honor the land these people come from. I'm so sorry. But, Martha Rose, I thought that your listener writing comment was um, pretty good to read for this particular podcast because we were talking a little bit more about embracing poverty. Um, and I guess, as far as my understanding of your question, um, Something that is helping me is being in nature, and it sounds like you're going to be going out on the water. I'm not exactly sure in what capacity, but uh, yeah, just embracing all you can of nature because nature is not impoverished, but it will teach you to live simply and to like 
be able to resist those materialistic bullshits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you say uh, those who have um, educated and inspired, I am really honored to be counted among those people. I would love to hear who the other people who have educated and inspired you are um, so we can learn from them and also share them with our listeners. And uh, definitely keep us up to date with how your adventure goes. Um, We'd love to hear how this new life on the water, um, rejecting materialistic bullshit, Mm -hmm. um, goes. And, uh, yeah, I'd say, God, tips for how to do it. I'd say keep your goal in mind. You already have a goal. If you're considering this, if you're seeking out these teachers, if you're considering, like, a change, a life on the water, and you want to reject the materialistic bullshit. You already have a goal. Something has sparked in you, some truth. Um, Explore that. For some people, it's going out camping by themselves. For some people, it's meditation. I don't know what your path is to it. But that, I think, is the thing that's going to help get you through and um, bring you back to your strength. You've already found something. Don't forget that. You don't need to find something new. It's that thing that you already have that's already got you on this path. Hmm. I like that. So Martha Rose, here's a, an easy essay from Peter Marin. Maybe it'll be something in, of interest to you. I love this one. I think it's my favorite one. It's called Why Not Be a Beggar? People who are in need and are not afraid to beg give to people not in need the occasion to do good for goodness' sake. Modern society calls the beggar bum and panhandler and gives him the bum's rush. The Greeks used to say that people in need are the ambassadors of the gods. We read in the gospel, as long as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. While modern society calls the beggars bums and panhandlers, they are in fact the ambassadors of God. To be God's ambassador is something to be proud of. Mm. 